Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 31. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy. On this edition of the podcast, we have a very special guest, someone that I've been trying to get on the show now for several months, but luckily the stars aligned and we were able to get our calendars all sorted today. And I am very pleased to have Aaron Vermoot, the CEO of Prosper, on the podcast. And in this interview, we talk a little bit about the history of Prosper and about history of his involvement with Prosper and what those early days were like. We then bring it forward to today and some of the recent developments that have, that have happened. We discuss some of those in depth and also move on to the future, get some idea about you know who Prosper is trying to be and what their plans are for the future. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Uh, thank you, Peter. Happy to be here. Okay, let's kick it off with, um, with just getting, letting the listeners know a bit about your background and what, what, you've, what you did before you came to Prosper. Absolutely. Uh, so I graduated from college in 1995. I went to Washington University in St. Louis, majored in uh, history and German language and literature, uh, which was the perfect precursor <laughs> for uh, what I did next, which was I came out to California and I got a job in, uh, in technology consulting. Right, right. Um, you know, the, the non-sequitur there is I actually started uh, you know, as a technical writer for a consulting firm and then transitioned into you know, what's, what's traditionally known as a product role within the technology consulting organization, uh, you know, working through specs and designing systems for, you know, large MIS and data warehousing integration. So it's really exciting stuff. I did that for three and a half years here out in California uh, and also in, in Switzerland, actually, for Cambridge Technology Partners. Uh, 1998 to 2000, I went to Wharton. Uh, I got my MBA in finance and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And after I graduated from Wharton in 2000, I moved to Washington, D.C., where I got a job with New Enterprise Associates, which is a very large early stage uh, venture capital firm uh, that exists, you know, both, both on the East Coast and in, in Silicon Valley. It's actually one of, the, one of the oldest venture firms in the country. And I worked for the managing general partner of, of, uh, of, of NEA for, for three and a half years, making on the investing staff making wireless and software infrastructure investments uh-huh. uh, uh, with that team. And I was, a, I was a principal in that organization. In, uh, in late 2003, I actually left NEA, moved to California, and started my own thing with my father, Steve, who I think many of your listeners are, are aware of as my partner here at, at Prosper. Uh-huh. And we started a company called Merlin Securities. Uh, we started the company in 2004 here in California and in New York simultaneously. Our CTO was in New York. Uh, and we built, uh, you know, a, a broker-dealer servicing small and medium hedge funds with high-end technology reporting, back office services, and trading. We, you know, we sort of spent the first part of 2004 building technology and broker-dealer and servicing and infrastructure. Uh, Peter, as you know, from when you start a new business, all that stuff takes a little time to set up. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, we did our, sort of our, our first revenue-generating stub year in 2005, and we ran that business from 2005 until 2012. So 2011 was our, our last full year in business. 
And, and, and by the way, Ron Suber joined us in that endeavor in 2008, in April 2008. That's the third leg of the stool in the partnership with Prosper. Mm-hmm. In April of 2012, we signed the definitive deal to sell that business to Wells Fargo. Uh, it actually became uh, what is today the Wells Fargo Prime Services business in Wells Fargo Securities. And then we closed that deal in August of 2012. Uh, and then we all, the entire business went over and became part of Wells Fargo, where okay. Steve, Ron, and I kind of, you know, we, we worked for a little while before coming to Prosper. Right, right. So then you know, while you're working at Merlin, obviously, you, well, like, when did peer-to-peer lending first get on your radar? And was it, you know, was it through Ron or, how, or did you find, discover it independently? How did it happen? Yeah, well, you know, I, I definitely came to the space relatively late. You know, and it was it was it was through Ron. When we were when we were running Merlin, you know, I'm a you know very usually very focused on on the business that I, I'm running or I'm working on. And uh, you know, I didn't really pick up my head and look around until after the business was sold. Uh, and it was the fall of uh, of 2012 when Ron, you know, basically uh, said to me, "Hey, you know, this peer-to-peer lending thing is really interesting." He had been investing on both platforms for a number of years you know, thousands of loans and, you know, we're just a, a general peer-to-peer lending enthusiast. And, you know, he basically, you know, encouraged Steve and I to take a look. Uh, and then we met some people involved in the business and started getting engaged, uh, you know, probably November, December of, or October, November, December of 2012. Mm-hmm. So then what, so what attracted you to, what, what was the challenge? What was the reason that you decided to really, you know, do this kind of takeover of Prosper, shall we say? Yeah, so it's a it's a really interesting story, and there's probably a longer form uh, book in here somewhere. But <laughs> when we started looking at Prosper, you know, the company was really at a at a at a real decision point in its history. Uh, Chris Larson had been gone since March. You know, we're looking at it in October, November, the same year. Um, the business had somewhat flatlined. It had you know legal problems in the form of the class action lawsuit. It did not have a coherent strategy going forward or, or even a permanent management team. I mean, I mean there, was a, there was an interim CEO uh, running the company on a, on a couple days a week basis. So when we, we looked at it, there was definitely, you know, it was a moment in time. And there, I think there was a round of financing that was trying to come together, which had, uh, frankly, I think it fallen apart. And so when, when we got engaged, we, we started, we met with Excel and Jim Breyer and John Locke, the, the guys who were managing the investment for, for Excel. And, and they basically wanted uh, Steve, Ron, and I to become investors in the business. You know, we are not professional investors. We're professional managers. And we started taking a look under the hood, uh, under the auspices of doing an investment in the company. And, you know, just came very, you know, very quickly we came to the conclusion that there was, this was a very interesting business in a fast growing space with a very large addressable market, you know, there was a unknown uh, liability surrounding the class action lawsuit. There, <laughs> there was, uh, you know, unknown technical debt in the, in the company, you know, just, you know, how much investment had been made in technology, how well did the platform work, how scalable was it? And there were just cultural and structural issues within the company that we, you know, we could, try to assess, but would never really get, you know, all the way to understand the risks within the time allotted to close an investment because the company really needed to close a deal. So, 
but we were you know we were very attracted at the same time by the by the market size by the business model uh by the disruptive nature of what the company was trying to do you know and frankly you know the the opportunity to take something that was you know fundamentally a great idea but just not executing well and try to fix it mm-hmm. um and so uh we kind of closed our eyes and held our noses and jumped right in i mean there were there were a lot of things about the company that we just didn't know when we put the money in and, and, and got engaged. And so we, when we got here in, you know, uh, I guess it's uh, two years ago last week, mm-hmm. um, we had to, you know, just start going through the contracts and the bills and the customers and the business model and the, you know, liability re- related to the class X lawsuit and just start figuring it out. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, Peter, that, um, in the beginning, we were going through investment, you know, all the way through to the time when the deal closed, you know, there was no certainty that we were going to do it. I mean, we didn't just jump in here, you know, enthusiastically saying, you know, you know, this looks like a great opportunity. Let's just go take it over and fix it. There were, you know, we were certainly aware of some of the significant risks and, um, and trying to keep our eyes open about, uh, about, you know, what we were going to have to do over the, over the coming years. Right. Right. I know. I mean, in, uh, I'm chatting with uh, Ron Suber at uh, length about it, and the deal almost didn't come together, too. From what I gather, it was uh, it was very much a well. There was <laughs> there was some contention between yeah. us and the board about the structure of the deal, mm-hmm. yeah, but also um, you know, Ron and I needed some convincing as well. I mean, there was enough you know in the, in the parlance of venture capital, there was a, enough hair on this deal that it made it look pretty risky, right? But at the end of the day, we had a great partner in Sequoia. Uh, we feel like we have a pretty good team. And we were putting in a limited amount of money into the into the company, so we kind of understood the limited nature of the downside, uh, and paired that off with, you know, hopefully the large nature of the upside. If we didn't break the thing when we were trying to fix it, and frankly, we weren't tied up at Wells Fargo uh, and didn't really know what to do with the rest of our careers anyway. So it was sort of one of those things where we said, look, this is uh, this is something where there's a you know a large upside for a limited downside. Let's take a take a chance and, and go for it. So then, at what time, like at what point, did you realize, okay, great, this is this is a rocket ship that that, that we've got here, and we're gonna we're gonna really launch it. I mean, what when did you sort of go from thinking, wow, I hope this is working, to oh my god, this is this is amazing. Right. Well, from day one, we knew that we were gonna try to go big or just break it trying. You know, some of the, you know, the key moments for us were, you know, the, the first six months were the hardest. When we got here, we didn't even know if the business model worked. We didn't know, uh, you know, what we'd inherited from a technology standpoint. Uh, and we certainly needed to deal with the class action lawsuit because it was just a, a, a giant wet blanket that was thrown over the prospects of the company from, from many perspectives until we could get that settled, you know, from retail and institutional and everything. You know, it was just this this thing that was out there and, you know, and the class had been certified and we were potentially going to trial in October of 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, you know, the court had basically mandated that we all get together and try one more time at a negotiated uh, session to try to work things out. And so the day we went and did that and the day that we went in there and we settled the lawsuit, that was a, a very big moment for the company and, you know, definitely freed us up to start thinking about the future uh, we certainly didn't want to spend the next five years of our lives tied up in litigation with a certified class. And we, you know, even though we, it was a $10 million settlement over four years, we figured while that was a large money, a large number in the context of where the company was at the time, you know, it either was going to matter or it wasn't. And if we could grow, then it wouldn't matter as much. 
And if we couldn't handle it, then the company was probably going to go out of business anyway. Right. So, but it needed that chance to succeed. And so that was a really big moment for us. You know, in the first six months, I and mean, if you look at the filings, Peter, you'll see us growing from nine or $10 million a month of originations to 15 to 21 to 27 to 33. And we get up to about 33 million originations. We are losing more money than we had been losing at $10 million originations, which means that we had some pretty fundamental problems right. uh, in, the, in, the, in the model, right? So we were marketing more, doing more business, losing more money. That's actually not the way <laughs> it's supposed to work. <laughs> mm-hmm. So over the summer of 2013, we made a, a number of changes to the platform. You know, we rewrote the borrower funnel. We, you know, we put in the new, well, right when we started at the company, we had put in the new, uh, the new credit model that uh, Josh Chandra, our, our chief risk officer, had been working on. Uh, but we changed our data source from ScoreX, which is primarily a subprime scoring uh, service, to FICO 08, uh, so that we could better match our customers' expectations of their, you know, for their good credit of what they should get as a, as a rate. Uh, and we lowered our prices to match what we saw out there in the industry as a whole. And so the real big moment for Prosper was in August of 2013 when we released uh, those three things, so the new funnel, the new pricing, and the new data source. And if you look at the fourth quarter of 2013, you'll actually see originations start to rise again from 30, 35 to 67, I believe, by the end of 2013. And if you look at the filing for the fourth quarter of 2013, you will actually see originations going up. We're still losing money, but losses actually start to come down, mm-hmm. which is what you know, a healthy business is actually supposed to do. Uh, and we started making money on a contribution basis on, on loans uh, that we were, you know, we were marketing to. So we send out marketing. We spend a certain amount of mar- on marketing. We, you know, we do more money in revenue than we spend on marketing, and then that contribution margin from the loan starts to pay for the overhead of the business. And we figured, you know, okay, now we actually have a business model that's working here, and we can try to, you know, really now execute and go bigger and achieve scale, so that that contribution will actually start paying for the overhead in the business, and we can either break even or make money or reinvest in the business or whatever we want to do with it. Right, right. And so that obviously, those things you put in place there, I mean, it drove the growth in 2013, the fourth quarter, but like 2014 has, you know, the numbers are obviously in the books now and it was, you know, a a staggering growth, you know, going to like 1.6 billion from uh, 300 odd million the previous year. So when you're asked about this, what do you say? What are the key drivers of of that astounding growth you you achieved in uh, in 2014? Right. So the key drivers there were a, a number of things, but we you know we fundamentally rebuilt sort of the partnership uh, borrower acquisition model at Prosper. So we, you know, whereas I think in late 13, if you look at our acquisition mix, we were like 80 percent direct mail, direct response on an acquisition basis. And if you look at the mix at the end of 2014, we're about 40% direct mail, 40% partnerships, and then 20%, you know, kind of all the other stuff like SEO and pay-per-click and direct-to-site. Uh-huh. And so we started going out there. We started working with the lending trees and credit cameras and bank rates and other partners and building out affiliate programs so that we had a diversity of channels to acquire customers. And at the same time, we continued to hone down on the things that we needed to do well in order to increase that contribution margin and make money on the loans when they come in. So, you know, streamlined funnel, 
you know, highly efficient verification process, better customer service. We, in 2014, you know, we expanded our customer service. We have over uh, 130 people in a call center in Texas uh, handling inbound customer service calls. We also opened, you know, uh, a facility in Phoenix to handle uh, our underwriting and verification work. You know, it's about a 20,000 square foot facility. About 60% of all of our verification processing now happens in Phoenix, and that's a much more cost-effective way uh, than trying to do it in downtown San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frankly, the talent is there. I mean, if you think about all the people who lost their jobs at the end of the last cycle who were working in uh, mortgage underwriting from Bank of America and Countrywide, and, and Wells Fargo and all these other people, there's all this skill set for exactly what we need to do in terms of underwriting verification, resident in Phoenix at, uh, at, a, at a, cost effect, a cost-effective basis. So we started building that out in Phoenix. We just got better and better at drilling down into uh, you know, aspects of our, our credit model, our acquisition model, our verification model. So a lot of that growth was basically done on the same number of sort of targeted users and uh, unique visitors to the site, we just learned how to convert those people into loans better. So conversion is really a, a, a key word around here, conversion, 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 in a cost-effective manner. And then one of the things that really sort of turned the dial for us in the year was uh, we released the fifth generation of our proprietary credit model. We call it PMI5, Prosper Marketplace Inc. 5. And it actually you know, really increased our ability to target borrowers, to identify those good borrowers who have a high likelihood to pay back and to identify or to better identify either fraudulent borrowers or potential borrowers or people who are less likely to pay back. So we could avoid the bad and lend more money to the good. And that produced a 40% increase in our marketing efficiency right there by targeting our, our, our customers better. Hmm. So, uh, you know, if you look at the quality of the loans that have been, that we've been, um, issuing over the, you know, the last year, as we grew from, as you said, 369 million in loans originated in, in 2013 to 1.6 billion in 14, you know, verified by third parties, like, you know, like, like PeerCube, the loan quality is actually getting better. Right. Yep. No, I, I, I've seen that from a variety of sources. So, and, th- and just on just one other thing about the growth. I mean, you, you're obviously you're driving down your acquisition costs per borrower. I mean, so is that is that still? Are you still improving on that? Like, do you have goals for Q1 of 2015 to you know, to keep driving that cost down? I mean, there's got to be a point where it's going to be difficult to drive it down much further. Well, we. It's interesting. You, we want to drive it down, but not at the cost of growth. We want to make sure it is. You know, it is reasonable within the models that we have a good contribution margin and we can continue to reinvest in the business, but we don't want to squeeze our partners. We really want to focus on uh, being able to better monetize the traffic that's coming to us rather than, you know, trying to go out back out to our partners and saying, no, we need to pay you less, right? So we're still investing in those channels. We're investing in our growth. We want, there's a, a really great flywheel effect that you get by investing in your partners. Uh, if you pay your partners on a success basis. And a lot of the, a lot of the work that we do with our partners is we, they basically make like a revenue share on a loan. If they refer somebody, a qualified borrower over to us, but they have to actually take the loan. 
And the more business you're able to convert at higher dollars, the more revenue you can share with the partner. The partner makes more money. If a partner is making more money off of the relationship, they are able to spend more on placement and targeting and advertising for you on their site, that, which means you get actually more referrals. And so you get this, this you know, sort of wonderful flywheel of you know, digital commerce where the more business we're able to do, the happier they are, the more business they send us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we want to make sure those partners are happy, uh, able to invest in, in the relationship with us. So we're, you know, there, it's a balance. And there's, when you're running a business like this, there's, really, there's only sort of three ways to approach marketing. You can really dial back, because you know, when, t- when you target, Peter, you can basically say, here's where my maximum return is on a marketing spend. And you can look at the response rates, and they sort of tail off the deeper you mail or the deeper you market into a, into a segment. And so you could say, we could go for maximum profit, we can go for, that's one way, you can go for sort of, you know, go for the last profitable loan. So where marginal revenue equals zero or mar- you know, marginal profit equals zero so the, of the marginal cost. So you have basically uh, your mail as deep as possible without wasting money. Or you can just go and, and mail everybody and waste money and, and, and try to grab market share. You know, we tend to be that, focus on that middle methodology, which is, we want to mail and we want to market to borrowers as deep as possible so we get that last loan that's profitable, but we don't want to waste money at it. So we're still, which is why you see us running basically a break-even business. We're investing in channels. We're investing in marketing. We're going after that sort of last loan, uh, but not trying to you know, waste money doing it. Right, right. Okay. So, so let's, let's move over to the other side of your business, the, the investor side. And, you know, obviously, you know, it's no secret that you guys have done an amazing job in, of pulling in, you know, some large institutional investors onto your platform. Some of the biggest names in finance are investing in loans on Prosper. So I wanted us to talk about the, you know, the retail investor. And, you know, obviously the demand is, is insatiable in some ways from these institutional investors. And, you know, the retail investor demand it seems like it's it's not growing uh, dramatically. Can you just talk a bit about what what your plans are for the retail investor and what you're intending to to do to to sort of make that you know give it a bit a bit more of a balance between the institutional and retail? Sure, absolutely. So I, I'm going to go back a little bit and just talk about you know, when we first got here. One of the things you have to make sure of is when we're going to go out and spend uh, literally millions of dollars on borrower campaigns. The one thing you really want to be sure of when you're trying to start one of these platforms from a standstill is to make sure that you have that investor capacity to fund those loans. Uh-huh. Because if you, if you bring on a bunch of borrowers and they list loans and they don't get funded, you have, created, you have basically created a really poor customer service experience, a customer experience for the borrowers, and generated no revenue, wasted a bunch of marketing dollars, and had all this fruit die on the vine. And so... Very early on, we basically brought on these anchor tenants in terms of some of these institutional investors so we could have that core so we would know that if we went out and spent all this money on marketing campaigns, we could fund the loans and we could continue to learn more about our business, which is, again, back to what we learned in the first six months uh, of being here. If we hadn't had some of those institutional guys, you know, if we were doing about $9 million a month with retail at the time and we wanted to grow to 30 it's very hard to grow retail predictably, and it's, and it's really hard to go 
on a one-to-one basis on a marketing level with retail. And so we wanted to make sure that we could prove out the, the, the borrower side of the model and the business model first. And that's why the institutional guys were so, so critical in the very beginning. So that being said, we are totally committed to retail here. I know we get a lot of uh, flack for having a lot of institutional investors on the platform. Frankly, you know, they are it definitely they grow faster than retail because they show up with millions of dollars instead of thousands of dollars. But we maintain a, a you know a very heavy legal compliance accounting function here, which is you know state by state compliance, SEC compliance, public filings, S ones on every loan we fractionalize, bankruptcy remote structure, which is the only bankruptcy remote structure in the industry that actually also applies to retail. You know, this is, this, all of this is an investment in the retail platform and all of it is an investment that we're going to continue to make. And we really feel like, I personally really feel like that the growth and the health of our, of our, the retail side of the business is how we build a hundred year company here. When, if, and when that there is a change in the cycle, rates change, investment profiles change, the big guys are yield chasers and they could represent fast money. I think some of them will be around for a long time. I think some of them will go away. Certainly the dynamic on the platform will change. And that's where retail will be so important because retail does have the profile of being stickier as we call it uh, and investing through a cycle. So last year, 2014 was definitely the year of the borrower where we invested into the funnel and the credit model and Making sure that the business model works from a you know, from an economic standpoint. This year, um, you know, we have a we have hired a dedicated investor services product manager in the in our product group, which is the the people who sit between business and engineering to design new products and services. Uh, and he's actually been with us for over six months designing the future of the investor experience. So, over the next twelve months, we have a roadmap to uh, not only you know, rebuild the, what we call the investor funnel, which is the process of creating a new investor account. We think it needs a lot of work. It's, it could be a lot easier, you know, integrating with services like PayPal for funding, but also to rebuild the tools that investors have access to and to, to screen loans, to buy loans, to look at their performance and to, and to gauge how they're doing on the platform. You know, the, you know, some examples, you know, literally would be, you know, making the API work faster, work better. One of the things I'd like to see actually is the ability for someone to come on the platform and just say, you know, just index me, just buy me a representative sample of everything that comes across. So I don't have to, you know, screen this, do this complicated screen, this criteria screen. Mm-hmm. And so we're, you know, rebuilding API, the sorry, AQI. We're, you know, rebuilding the, the web screening experience. We're rebuilding basically everything. We're also looking at rebuilding the folio experience, although I think we need to do some work just getting it up to par. I mean, I, I will be the first to acknowledge that, you know, the investor side of the house does need that work. And so we have a weekly, what we call a scrum, where we all sit down and we talk about priorities and development schedules and, and rollouts for uh, investor services. You'll really see... The, the first fruits of that labor uh, rolling out onto the website in the, in the beginning of the second quarter. We're, we're doing the development work now. But I'll also say that, you know, from my perspective, you know, the future of the business, the holy grail for me 
with regards to retail participation and broad-based retail, retail participation may not be directly related to people who are coming to our site. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think that you know, what we have as a website where, where investors seek us out, they understand what we're doing, they understand the product, and they want to transfer money to us and open an account and start picking loans is still a hobbyist or in like an expert experience. And it's great. We, those are our, that's our bleeding edge. Those are the people who represent the core of our business. But if you really want to get out there and get broad-based exposure, you really have to create a vehicle that people can just say, hey, I want to have exposure to this asset class. And they go into their Schwab or their Fidelity or their whatever brokerage account, and they buy a ticker. And that ticker basically buys them an index of Prosper Loans. Right. And yeah, so, yeah, I completely agree. I, think I would that's... say that we are actually working with uh, third parties. This is not something that we would do. We're not an investment platform, but we are working with third parties who are, who are, who are exploring creating sort of closed-end fund structures that would literally be like an ETF or a closed-end mutual fund that would allow people to just buy a ticker and exchange-traded product and get exposure to the asset class. Uh, and for me, that's that's really when you're when you're off to the races from a, yeah. like a permanent capital retail perspective. Yeah, I agree. I, mean, I think I mean having individuals open up an account, you need to be more of an enthusiast uh, to really do that. I mean, the way that the majority of people, I and mean, if this industry is really going to get the scale that we think it will, people you know people need to be able to select it as part of like their four hundred one k plan at work and be able to say right, I'll, I'll, that sounds great. I'll give me give me some unsecured consumer loans and and and, and be done with it. I think that's right. That's that's the key. So yeah, it's point point taken. Well, also, if you think about it, Peter, like what 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 uh, wealth manager or RIA is going to say? Yeah, you should transfer assets off of our platform right. to that website and buy loans. You know, go and pick loans in an active way. If we actually had that exchange traded product, the wealth manager could say, "Hey, leave your money here on our platform. Buy this vehicle, this low overhead expense vehicle." Uh, and have a 5% allocation from your fixed income you know, portfolio to unsecured consumer loans, that is, that's the way it's going to have to be. I mean, right. You're not going to get broad-based appeal for people opening up individual accounts. Yep, yep, for sure. So I want, I want to switch gears a little and talk about a couple of recent developments that really just uh, just happening this month. Uh, and the first is uh, a change in uh, your reporting. You're, you're going from you know, real-time daily updates of your of your loan numbers to doing it quarterly, 45 days after the end of the quarter. Uh, I wanted to get your, your your reasoning for that and uh, and and the timing of the change and uh, you know, why you decided that that was that was important. Sure, there, it, it, there's there's multiple aspects to the conversation around around data. Uh, and how we disclose uh, their details are are on the Prosper blog of exactly what we did, but fundamentally, our, all the moves are, are, are the move that we made is really designed to do two things. It's designed to preserve bidders and customers' access to bidding data. So if you're an API user, if you're looking at loans on the website, individual loan criteria is all still there the way it's always been. And investors will also continue to have access to their performance data on a loan-by-loan basis. What we've done is we've removed some of the files that give you the whole picture of everything, every loan we're doing by loan ID, cross-reference with credit criteria. 
And why we're doing that is to protect our most valuable asset, which is our data asset around underwriting. There have been rumors and there have been actual products that have been released by people who have literally gone out and pulled down our data and either tried to reverse engineer it or reverse engineer it to launch their products and to get a, to get a jump start on data. Yep. And uh, I, I, some, and of the, some of them have told me they've done the exact, that exact thing for both you guys and, and lending clubs. So Yeah, and, yeah. and by the way, it's, a, it's, it's actually illegal. It's a total violation of the terms of use. Everybody who actually gets access to our data signs a confidentiality agreement. People are doing it anyway. There are bad actors in the industry. Those people are actually making you know, probably a really big mistake by thinking that they can just you know, use technology to reverse engineer a credit model without actually having the expertise in-house. This is hard. This is, you know, we have statisticians and mathematicians here that are actually looking at this stuff and tweaking it every day. But fundamentally, what we're trying to do is we're trying to just protect that asset. It's, it's our proprietary data. It's information about our borrowers. And it is our underwriting model. And so we're just taking it uh, off the open inter- internet and protecting it so that we can, we can preserve value in the organization. And then the other aspect really is, is, you know, on the reporting of the loan volumes and stuff, which is you know, very similar to what we've seen others in the industry do. But we are, we want to be and we want to uh, get others to focus on quarterly, quarterly results. We want to have the appropriate time horizon for investment and growth. And we don't think that people should be focusing on us on a day-by-day, month-by-month basis. There's variations in the business. And so, you know, we're going to just get into that quarterly reporting schedule now. If we, if anything ever happened with this business in the future uh, regarding going public or an acquisition or, or any, anything else, that would happen anyway. And it's just a, it's just a, a change in, in, in sort of the, the longstanding way that we've reported it, like literally on a, day to, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and it's just, it's, again, it's, it's to protect us from those, those short-term whims. I mean, we're a private company. We need to have the freedom to experiment and to fail, to miss a month, to, to hit a month, but we want to keep hitting our quarters. You know, and so this is, you know, this is just about, you know, again, controlling the reporting data. We, we report our finances on a quarterly basis anyway, and we're just putting the, the originations on the same cadence. Right, right. Okay, well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the, uh, that IPO question that you just threw out there in a second. But before I do, I want to go back to the other uh, big piece of news that just happened, and that is the, your acquisition, the first acquisition for in Prosper's history of American healthcare lending. Can you, like, what, like I guess, give, give us a bit of the backstory to, to why, how, they can't, how they got on your radar sure. and why you decided to, to make this acquisition? Yeah, well, this is something we're very excited about, Peter, and I'm, I'm glad you asked about it. We've been working with uh, American Healthcare Lending for, uh, for a while now. They're actually one of our partners. They, they basically do what is called financing as a service. They are in uh, a large number of doctor's offices around the country, and they focus on helping patients arrange financing uh, for elective medical procedures. So... If you are at a fertility clinic that is a subscriber to AHL's service, they will, you know, literally hook you up with a Prosper or one of the other providers on their platform, and uh, and make sure that you get the financing to get that done. Again, we've we are uh, we've been partnered with them for a while, uh, and we see this as uh, you know really exciting opportunity for Prosper to expand our capabilities into the point of sale and elective medical space. So 
you know, if you think about it, uh, you know, right now our marketing efforts really are directed either through direct mail or partnerships sort of for a direct response, direct to consumer, so B2C type of uh, contact. Mm-hmm. And AHL, their elective health offering is a B2B2C model. So they're basically going from Prosper to AHL to the doctor's office. The doctor is then trained to make the offer of credit to the customer, and the customer can apply when they need the credit. And this is a this is a capability, a sales capability that we, you know we're interested in in, in in owning and continuing to build. And we think that the elective health space is the perfect place to start. It is a twenty billion dollar a year origination market, growing at about twenty percent a year. And the thesis that we have here internally is that it's actually going to grow faster than that, and that there's also an opportunity, a wild card here for for increased growth. Where if you see you know more and more Americans with healthcare plans with high deductibles, five to ten thousand dollar deductibles, there is room for a prosper type loan to help them actually pay off even covered procedures. Right. Um, yep. And so uh, you know we are you know uh, we're you know acquiring those guys right here uh, in in January. The deal is actually closed. And uh, we're going to leave business as usual for them for, for, for a while. But this is really, you know, part of our strategy for, for 2015 is the capabilities building so we can, so we can broaden our reach uh, going forward. Right. So, so practically speaking, you said these are already a partner of you guys. So you, you are already uh, obtaining new borrowers through, through this channel. So I guess so nothing's, nothing's going to change dramatically, I guess, as you integrate this, because you're, you're still going to be a, a channel partner. I mean, I presume. Right. We're going to, well, we're going to, yeah, sorry, Peter, sorry to interrupt. We're, we're really going to, uh, we're, this is a, like I said, this is capabilities for us. We're, we're not buying growth. We're buying technology. We're buying sales acumen and we're buying a channel. And, and so it's a little bit different. You're not going to see like us, you know, tack on a new segment of originations that we weren't doing before. Uh, we are going to integrate the business. We are going to change the business model a little bit into a, you know, a real competitive point of sale product, uh, which will allow us to, uh, you know, re- offer the, you know, the Prosper loans directly in the doctor's office with potentially competitive rates and competitive terms to the other products that are in the elective medical industry. Uh, but we really feel like elective medical is a is a is a space that's ripe for disruption. There are uh, a number of players in the space, and they are you know, sort of operated without very much competition and very wide spreads over the last, you know, uh, number of years. And the rates are high. It's very much like the, you know, like the credit card business where the rates are high. There's teaser rates with back interest if you, if you don't pay. And, uh, you know, we feel like a consumer friendly, high touch customer service experience like what Prosper has to offer could be potentially extremely disruptive to the elective, elective medical mm-hmm. uh, procedure. Sure. And as you said, even the broader, the broader medical, I mean, as you, I mean, I know that, you know, so many people now have a 5,000 or a $10,000 deductible on their plan, on their plans. It's because uh, it's getting so expensive. So I can see this broadening dramatically. I want to go back to the, you, you threw out the IPO comment. Um, there's certainly been a lot of speculation since, uh, since Lending Club went public uh, a little while ago. I get asked this, I'm sure you get asked this every day, just about what are your plans? Is an IPO on the horizon for, for this year, for next year, or what can you talk about it? Sure. So as you know, Peter, I, it's, it's difficult for me to make uh, you know, forward-looking statements with regards to anything like that. I'll tell you, we, we, don't ha- we don't currently have a plan for going public, and we haven't 
hired an underwriter or filed an S1. And you know, frankly, uh, you know, the good news for the public is if we ever do file, because of uh, you know our unique structure, uh, we cannot do a confidential filing, so it'll be, it'll be telegraphed way ahead of time. Mm-hmm. No, but we are. Look, we're, we we get a lot of utility out of being a private company. Like I said before, we want to be able to. Uh, make investments and want to be able to succeed or fail and have variability in our in our in our months if we if we want to experiment with new projects at the same time we are getting big we are growing fast uh, the macro environment is pretty good never say never but there's like I said there's currently no plan uh, in the works right now okay I guess that's that's the best we can we can get from you on that Another thing like, I wanted to talk about briefly was, uh, you know, your, your, your previous company was acquired by Wells Fargo, who, you know, who are, you know, active in the space in one capacity or another. I mean, Norwest Ventures were, was a big investor in the Lending Club. I mean, you, I think you guys have Wells Fargo, I mean, the cash accounts sit, uh, that, uh, we, we have as investors sits at Wells Fargo. And you, you obviously know this company. I mean, you work for them for a few months. Where do you think a company like Wells Fargo actually becomes, you know, more active in the space? I mean, do you think a company like Wells Fargo would ever would ever acquire you or take a majority interest? I mean, what's uh, what are your thoughts on the on the large banks like that? Sure, you know, I have a huge amount of respect for Wells Fargo. I only worked there for about six months, so put that in the perspective. But right. so I don't know them as well as I probably could. Other than, other than that, the, you know, they're really great people, and it's a quality organization. We do have. Our uh, corporate banking is there, and when you open an account at Prosper, there are, that's where the money actually is held. Right, mm-hmm. so they're our bank partner. Right, and I do know, uh, you know, the the individual who was leading the group that purchased Merlin is now the CFO of the entire bank, and I've actually sat down and had conversations with him about their view on the world. Uh, and you know, look, I think the big banks fundamentally are, you know, they're pretty frustrated. They are operating in a very strict regulatory environment. And they've spent the last, you know, seven, eight years convincing the regulators that they need to underwrite loans in a certain way to a certain level of quality with a certain amount of overhead that they can't just go back and say, hey, you know what, we were just kidding. We want to, you know, we want to do the uh, also unsecured consumer credit under $100,000 and do it all online like, like Prosper does. You know, I think that they 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 really they just don't want to deal with the regulatory scrutiny right now, given what they're under. And I think the opportunity for them, relative to uh, the things that actually are the cash cows and make them a lot of money, is very small. So you know, there are a number of banks that actually do have term loan products uh, in their offering, but it's you know, it's kind of like number 19 on a list of 20 things that they want to sell to you and. You know, I challenge you to try to find those things on their websites, or you, know, you have to go in and apply for it in the in the branch. Um, I just think it's not uh, unsecured consumer credit under 100 grand is not an area of focus. I think they perceive the regulatory risk is too high. I think uh, you know the cost structure for them with the branch model is also too high. Uh, you know, we can underwrite our loans uh, for uh, you know a cost that is just you know not in the realm of possibility for banks where they are now given their structure. And so in terms of a, you know, competitive offering from large banks, you know, you may or may not see it. I mean, you may see term loans, but I don't think you can see a, you know, like a peer to peer offering from a large bank. And, you know, I think the opportunity actually to work with these guys is actually in partnership with some of the regional super regionals and, and some of the uh, community community banks as well, where they don't have underwriting, they don't have the um, the expertise, the wherewithal to 
extend credit to their current customer base where we can work with them and, and try to help them with a lending program of their own. Mm-hmm. I don't see Wells Fargo also being able to go to their current shareholders and saying, hey, we want to acquire one of these businesses at a whole large valuation and then roll it into their, you know, their business, which is valued by, uh, you know, by a book multiple. I just don't, I just don't think that's, that's in the card. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. So final question. I know we've gone over time here, but I really want to ask you a little bit about your the growth plans. I mean, you've really focused on unsecured consumer credit for, you know, you know, you know basically from day one. You know, what about moving into other areas? I mean, going down the credit spectrum, maybe moving into small business or auto or, I mean, what, what really, what are the plans? What, what are you thinking about to help grow this business over the next uh, year or year to three years? Uh, sure. So I think one of the things you're going to see as a point of strategic differentiation for Prosper is that we intend for the foreseeable future to remain focused on unsecured consumer credit. I fundamentally believe that going into small business lending or mortgages and other types of secured lending or different underwriting models, each one of those represents a new business with new underwriting criteria, with new data requirements, new areas of expertise, new marketing channels. It's basically starting a new company. I think it's fraught with risk. What we really want to do is what we we want to focus on, you know, uh, exploiting the data asset that we have and that we've just taken steps to protect and being the player for unsecured consumer credit. That means expanding out from three- and five-year loans for debt consolidation, which is predominantly what the loans have been used for to date, and getting into new channels and new use cases, for example, like elective medical, like home improvement, special occasions, you know, even small business, but I would only say small business in, in the way that entrepreneurs would use a Prosper loan to start their business as opposed to their credit card because, uh, you know, part of the thesis we have around here is that credit cards are a fantastic transaction medium. They're in your pocket. They work at the point of sale, and they're kind of everywhere. They're ubiquitous, but they are a bad way to borrow money for more than 30 days and that we really need to get out there and we need to educate people as to what we're doing and create broader use case for the term loan product, and if that education, understanding, and awareness is there, then you know this market. You know, you you move from the eight hundred billion dollar a year credit card market to the three point three trillion dollar unsecured consumer credit market, and you build the capabilities around point of sale finance and transaction finance, and be there when people actually want to make a transaction and borrow for that transaction. And that's really the future for Prosper. So we'll continue to build out product functionality, product features, and capabilities. We're going to be spending this year in uh, brand building. So sometime around Lendit, hopefully we'll see a new brand identity. We'll be in you know, greater offline channels like television, radio, uh, terrestrial radio. We'll continue in you know, Sirius XM. We're going to hone our message. And really, the goal is to create a nationally recognized brand at the end of the year. We have a new CMO with uh, pretty deep e-commerce experience uh, and marketing chops to help us do that. And, you know, we'll, we're, going to, we're going to press our, our expertise and really stay the focused player in the industry on, on consumer credit. We will likely be deeper in the credit spectrum as we uh, do with capabilities building. We're going to do the point-of-sale finance and the electromedical stuff, 
we probably have to have the data around people with lower credit than 640 FICO. But it probably won't be an excessively large area of the business for us, given that it it doesn't really represent a huge payoff for us from a business model perspective. Uh-huh. It's really just more capabilities building. So if you may think about if we were down to 600 FICO, uh, those loans are inherently smaller based on the way you know, our, our loans are based on an individual's ability to repay. And so the payment needs to make sense for that person. So the loans are inherently smaller. The fees being charged are thereby even smaller. And they don't, they don't even really make a ton of sense on a market from a marketing perspective and recouping our, our costs. Mm-hmm. And so we're the opposite of a traditional lender in that respect, where you see those guys rushing into subprime to do more and more because the rates are higher and they can make a ton of money on it. You know, we make all we make the lion's share of our money on our you know B, A, and double A loans, but we do have to have that broader set of capabilities to penetrate the markets more deeply. Right. Okay. Great. Well, on that note, I think we'll sign off. I, I really appreciate your time today, Aaron. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right. Bye. Well, there you have it. It's certainly interesting that Prosper is choosing to focus just on the consumer credit market. That uh, It's certainly a big market, and I can see their reasons for doing so, and it's certainly a way for them to differentiate themselves in this industry. And I, as much as I would have loved to have uh, had a, a, a secret, heard a secret about the uh, any IPO plans, you know, I obviously didn't expect to. And, you know, I, I said in my predictions post uh, earlier this year that I didn't think Prosper would IPO this year. Now, that may or may not uh, end up being accurate, but I wouldn't be surprised if they use this year to really, you know, consolidate what they've done and, and really focus on their business and you know, going through an IPO is, is, you know, a bit of a distraction to the core business of any company. And so I think we may still not see that until 2016. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye.